0: From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado's democracy. I'm Sam Brash. Okay, CPR Business Reporter Ben Marcus, where do you want to start? Let's start with you uh, opening this email I sent you. You want me to open my email?
1: Yeah, just open your email. It's something special just for you.
0: There's sort of like an envelope. It looks like kind of an Evite. I, I just I open the envelope. Yeah, just click it. It's like a, a video with a package at the door and written on the package it says hamstergram and
1: Hello my buddy, hello.
0: Oh my buddy. god, a hamster just jumped out and it's like the hamster is a singing telegram. Yes,
2: you smile. Yeah.
0: Ben, what is this? It's a
1: hamster. I'm thinking of you. <laughs> Alright, that's really sweet, but like why did you want to start the episode this way? So this is an e-greeting card from a company called Blue Mountain, and probably you haven't heard of them before, but they were big in the early days of the Internet. But You have heard of someone who helped to build this company, Jared Polis.
0: The Democratic nominee for governor, you're saying his, his money comes from an
1: e-greeting card company? Yeah, and I spoke with him recently about his early days as a tech entrepreneur.
3: Yeah, electronic greeting cards, a free way to send a, a communication to a loved one or friend or a greeting for a holiday. And while that might sound like a simple idea now, it caught on it big like time. What it became, But it actually grew to become the sixth most popular site on the Internet during the holiday months uh, in 1999.
1: So he and his family eventually sell this company for almost $800 million, and he saw before most that the internet was going to change everything, even greeting cards. And love him or hate him, agree or disagree with his policies, you can't deny that Polis was ahead of major changes, a pioneer really, in business and in politics.
0: Okay, so he's a candidate, but you're saying he, he's not just that, that he's actually changed how
1: politics works? Exactly, because it's not like he just sat on all that money. Jared Polis spent it. He spent it on his own campaign. He spent it on ballot issues. He spent it on the campaigns of others, helping progressive candidates and causes. And in the process, he profoundly altered how money was spent on politics in Colorado in ways that many people probably don't even realize.
0: Okay, that's what this week's episode of Purplish is about. Jared Polis and his money. He's put $18 million of his own money to help win the governor's seat so far, dwarfing what any candidate had spent here ever before. So what we're going to look at is how he made all that money and what it means when millionaires or billionaires spend whatever it takes on a campaign. But I think by now most people have probably heard of Jared Polis. I mean, his ads are everywhere, and I think even before that, people knew him as sort of this uh, unusual, passionate congressman from Boulder. But tell me about how jared polis got started
1: so i think the story gets started really in 1993 when polis is a freshman at princeton university the internet is really in its early days we're talking text and links
3: internet is uh, that massive computer right. network the one that's becoming really
4: big
1: now it was still a mystery even to morning news anchors
4: you know, a lot of people use it and communicate with, i guess they can communicate with nbc writers and producers allison can you explain what internet
5: is
1: But Polis and his buddies in college, they're kind of tech nerds and they're playing around with this thing. And they get together and decide that they want to make it easier for people to access this thing called the Internet. And they started small.
3: With like 10 modems and a server and people could dial in, you know, the old (laughs) and they would be able to uh, access the Internet.
1: For the kids out there, that's an approximation of what it sounded like to dial into the Internet. So his friends eventually start a company called American Information Systems and they sell it for $22 million. How does he get from there to e-greeting cards? So his family had a business called Blue Mountain Cards. It was based in Boulder. Kind of a sleepy, sappy greeting card company. And his dad uh, is also kind of a tech nerd, Jared Pullis' dad. And he sends him a kind of e-greeting card, just a crude animation.
3: Because I'm away at college and and across the country. And uh, it was a way that we could communicate together between our family.
1: And so Jared and his dad see the possibilities, right? That we can go beyond paper cards and create these e greeting cards. They start a website and Blue Mountain just takes off. The Polis's sell, and this is actually one in a series of deals that Polis and his family close about a seven year period that nets them about more than a billion dollars. Wow. How does Polis go from there to a political career? So Polis actually had a long interest in politics. When he was 11, he fought a development in his neighborhood where he played. He was actually a poli-sci major at Princeton. Hmm. And so he jumped into his first political race here in Colorado. And even though he's 25 years old at the time, he has a big advantage. Money. Lots of money And one of the first people to realize just how much is this guy? Uh, Can you tell me your name and title, please?
2: Uh, (laughs) Right now, Ben Alexander, no title.
1: Okay, so who's Ben Alexander? Well, he's actually the first to really feel the punch of Polis's political might. It's the year 2000, and Alexander is a member of the Colorado Board of Education, and he's up for re-election. And he gets word that maybe it's not going to be the cakewalk he thought it was going to be.
2: At lunchtime in one of our board meetings, Gully Sanford, who was the only Democrat on the board, uh, said, we have a a guy that's willing to spend a million bucks to run against you. And to be honest, I kind of chuckled because I couldn't imagine anybody would spend a million dollars for a seat on the State Board of Education.
1: And even today, it's still not a big money race. So
0: Alexander sees that Polis is ready to spend a ton of money on his campaign. I mean, does he assume he's just going to be blown out of the water? Yes.
2: Yeah, I jokingly said I ought to write him a letter and just give me a check for half a million dollars and we'll save you half a million dollars. And... I'll step up.
1: So Alexander thinks that there's just no way that he can compete. The Republican Party doesn't really want to support him all that much either. They can't match $1.3 million. So Ben Alexander ends up spending about $10,000 on the race, and he only does one campaign event. What about Polis? What does he do to campaign in this race? So he really barnstorms the state, and he soups up this school bus. He says he makes it really high-tech, and he's everywhere. He's everywhere it ends up being too close to call on election night. And so Ben Alexander flies to Denver to attend a school board meeting the next day.
2: And then that night uh, after the meeting, uh, he called me and said he was going to declare victory. And I said, well, you might want to wait until we finish the recount because it was a mandatory recount. Wow. But he went ahead and declared anyway.
1: So when we asked Pullis' campaign about this, they forwarded us some press accounts from the time. And during the recount, Pullis says that he is confident that he'll win based on the numbers that he's seen. Still, it takes several weeks after the election, the race is finally called, and Polis does win by 90 votes. And he joins the school board, but Ben Alexander kind of realizes that this is just the beginning.
2: There was a concerted effort by uh, Democrats with a lot of money in Colorado that got together and, and were laying on a strategy to take over state government.
1: What Ben Alexander is getting at here is that Polis doesn't just care about education in Colorado. He wants Democrats to take back control of the state legislature.
2: And in many respects, they have been you know, successful.
1: When do Republicans get a
0: sense of what Polis and his allies might be up to?
2: really
1: on election night
3: 2004 from nbc news decision 2004
0: and the pace is reaching warp speed on this election 2004, now, so this is what, four years after he won
1: that seat on the Board of Education? Exactly. And this is when it starts to become clear how money, his money, would shift how campaigns are funded and even alter the relationship between big donors and the party. And this is a great night for Republicans pretty much everywhere. George W. Bush defeats John Kerry, wins a re-election, he increases his margin. They increase their majorities, Republicans do, in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. They take state houses across the country. Champagne corks are popping everywhere, except for Colorado. Doesn't Bush win Colorado that year? Sure, but the picture is completely different
4: at the state level. To say that Colorado Republicans were stunned the morning after election day is a gross understatement. So this is Rob Whitwer, a former state house Republican. I don't think in anybody's wildest dreams would they have imagined that there would be such a... a Significant reversal of fortune uh, for a party that had for decades controlled the state legislature without any serious challenge.
0: I mean, what happened? How did Democrats manage to pull that off? The Gang of Four.
1: That's what happened. <laughs> the Gang of Four. So, who are they? So, this is a group of wealthy, liberal minded folks Pat striker Rutt Bridges, Tim Gill, and by far the youngest person in this group, Jared Polis.
0: Full disclosure here, we got to say that Rut Bridges is a past CPR board president and helped donate the broadcast center that we're sitting in right now.
1: Yeah, that's true. And in 2004, he's part of this group that used their fortunes to jump into Colorado politics in a big way. Rob Whitwer, who we heard from earlier, he's actually the co-author of a book with an investigative journalist. The book is called The
4: Blueprint, and it really digs into the details of what happened in that 2004 election. What the Democrats did in 2004 was to build a party apparatus outside the party that was completely unburdened by the baggage of political history.
0: Why was it an advantage at this point for these wealthy guys to be working outside of the political party, in this case, the
1: Democratic Party? So any political party has factions and personalities and a history that bogs down the party. It makes it less efficient. Maybe money's not going to the races that are most competitive. It's going to the candidates who are more popular. Mm. Uh, And so what was also important at this time was that campaign finance reform was taking hold in Colorado. This limited contributions to the the party. So the party couldn't raise the same kind of money it did in the past to support these races. So you're saying the Gang of Four, which includes Polis, steps into this void? Right, and it's not just about their money. It's about trying out tactics on local
4: races that had never been tried before. Yeah, it was a quantum leap in technology. It was a quantum leap in coordination.
1: So one story from the book was these Palm Pilots. They would give Palm Pilots to Democratic canvassers, and they would sync them to a central database at the end of the day, and you'd have these rich files on voter contact. Now, this was unheard of at the local level in 2004.
4: Well, there's no question that Jared Polis, with his tech background, and as a funder of this coordinated effort, really saw the synergies between financial resources and application of data.
2: It sounds
0: like Polis, he was incredibly involved in making sure other Democrats had a chance to succeed. But at this point, when he's helping them and sitting on the state school board, what's he thinking about for his own
1: career? So around this time, the media is starting to notice Polis even more. He makes Forbes magazine's list of rich kids, uh, more money even than Britney Spears at her peak, which was surprising (laughs) to me. One profile quotes a party official as, don't be surprised if he runs for Congress, which he eventually does. He tells a reporter in Westward, actually around this time, that he might start more charter schools, which he does, or heck he might even run for governor someday. Now, this is 14 years ago when that article landed. And this speaks to his ambition, I think. Remember that he had still just won one race himself, a lowly Board of Education race by only 90 votes.
0: Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, Jared Polis and many other candidates pour money into this year's governor's race, what that means for the election in November and for Colorado's democracy.
5: Hey podcast listeners, this is Brad Turner, and if you like purplish, you might like the latest episode of another podcast from CPR. I host a show called Centennial Sounds, and the newest installment is actually about something purplish, or just purple. This is music by a composer named Benjamin Park. Ben felt exhausted during the 2016 election. He was sick and tired of ugly political battles. And he was thinking of how nice it would be if our red and blue states felt a little more purple. So he decided to write music about it.
1: I wasn't going to write a piece that was
5: going to fix that, of course, but to have a certain element of hope. He called its composition for Purple Mountains. He lifted the title from America the Beautiful, which you might know was inspired by a trip up Pikes Peak here in Colorado. Hear an exclusive full performance of For Purple Mountains by Benjamin Park and the story behind it on the Centennial Sounds podcast from CPR Classical. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks to CPR members for making shows like Centennial Sounds and shows like Purplish possible.
0: You're back with Purplish, a show about Colorado's democracy. I'm Sam Brash. Ben, when we left off, uh, Polis was still the youngest member of the Colorado State Board of Education. When does he decide to enter the national political scene?
1: In 2008, and he runs for Congress, and he does it in a very Jared Polis fashion.
5: In these times, we need leaders who understand how to create jobs. Jared Polis does. Jared started his first business at the age of 16 and now has created...
1: He spends huge sums of money, more than $5 million in the primary, which was a record. And it becomes actually the most expensive congressional primary race in the nation. Wow. And this time he wins pretty handily.
3: I want to thank you for this opportunity to serve you and to serve our great nation. And I look forward to taking office in January and working hard to turn this country around.
0: So he's been in Congress for about a decade now. What kind of politician has
1: he been during that period of time? It's actually kind of hard to categorize. On some
3: fronts, he's classically liberal. One of the great benefits of the Obama health care plan is that we will allow people to pursue their pretend-
1: He's gay, so he's been a leading voice on LGBTQ issues.
3: I mean, the president, like so many American families, has come to the recognition that uh, gay and lesbian Americans ought to be able to uh, have committed relationships and...
1: Have he has a libertarian bent. He's railed against the Patriot Act. He suggested that it might be worthwhile to privatize the Postal Service. He has a tech background, so maybe he's one of the few members of Congress who actually knows how Bitcoin works. But for all the time he spends in Washington, he definitely doesn't ignore Colorado politics. What do you mean? So I look back at 18 years of contributions in Colorado, and he's given to more than 400 different political campaigns. We're talking little races, school board races, all the way up to governor of Colorado. Not a lot of money, sometimes $800 here, a couple hundred dollars there, but it's widespread and it's sustained throughout the years. So
0: clearly he's not a congressman with his head just in D.C. politics. Why did he decide that this was the year to make the leap from Congress into the governor's race?
3: I'm Jared Polis, and I'm running for governor because Colorado faces real challenges.
1: Well, Hickenlooper is term limited, and Polis won his congressional seat back in 2008, so this is really the first time he could shoot for this office without challenging a sitting Democratic governor. It's also a good environment for Democrats this year, given that it's a midterm with an unpopular Republican president. And one thing
0: I know about you, Ben, is that when campaign finance reports come out, you're you're so excited. It's like you're getting really like, am. yeah, you, you are literally giddy to pour over these spreadsheets and to see where all this money is coming from, where it's going. After Polis declares his candidacy, how does he start showing up in these campaign finance reports?
1: So I think it was always clear from the get-go that Polis was going to spend millions of dollars on his own candidacy. But it was still actually shocking to see how much it influenced the campaigns of the other people running for governor. Every time I opened up these campaign finance reports, millions more was pouring into these races, including on the Republican side. But let's focus on the Democrats. We knew that this was going to be a competitive primary. Kerry Kennedy, a former state treasurer with the support of the teachers unions, Mike Johnston was in. He's a former state senator. He had big support, but this was on a level the likes of which I had never seen before. Especially when it comes to Mike Johnston and Jared Polis.
0: And just to be clear, Johnston and Polis had very different models. For supporting their campaigns. Johnston had a super PAC that was taking in donations and spending money on his behalf, while Polis was giving money directly to his campaign.
1: Right. Johnston has a super PAC called Frontier Fairness, and it's accepting millions of dollars from people like former New York mayor Michael Bloomberg. Donations to super PACs are unlimited. But the Supreme Court has also said that any individual can donate as much as they want to their own campaigns. So really it's two different kinds of uncapped spending. And this difference it really breaks out into the open during a Denver 7 debate this year.
3: Because I think the challenge is if you're going to advocate for campaign finance...
1: Johnston accuses Polis of starting this arms race with his
3: personal wealth. It just means that you can buy in while no one else can raise any money. So I think that you ought to be... And
1: Polis fires back that he's just trying to match Johnson's pack money.
3: Look, if you didn't have all these out-of-state donors, I wouldn't them. have needed to put in my own money to keep up with you. That, so, you know, it's the money begets money. You know, it's, it's you, you got to compete you, to get your message out. You don't have to compete.
1: From the research you've done. Do you know who started it? So yeah, I looked this up, and Mike Johnston was really the first out of the gate. He announced in 2017 that he was running for governor, and at the time, he started making headlines for breaking records for campaign contributions. So you could make an argument that Polis isn't the one who really started the money war, but he certainly finishes it. They're very close for the early primary season in terms of campaign contributions, but as we get closer to primary election day, Jared Polis just swamps it with cash. And this wasn't just on the Democrat side. Victor Mitchell, who ran for governor in the Republican primary, he spent $5 million of his own money, too.
0: Polis, of course, wins the primary. Has this kind of spending
1: continued into the general election? Definitely. So the Republican, Walker Stapleton. He's also rich. He's invested one point three million of his own money so far, mostly in the primary, where he was trying to offset all that Victor Mitchell money. Now a million dollars would have been a lot of money in Colorado politics just a decade ago, but Stapleton's one point three million is totally overshadowed by Polis' twelve million in the primary. Wow. And just like other candidates that have gone up against Polis' money, they make the money itself a
3: campaign issue.
4: Stapleton says this doesn't translate well to voters.
3: I don't think that's going to sit well with Coloradans. I don't think that they like the idea that somebody uh, is trying to buy an election.
1: And that's Um, pretty much been the standard attack line against Polis since his first days in politics.
0: Is it even possible to buy an election? Because Polis is far from the first wealthy candidate to spend a ton of money on his own campaign. My understanding is that plenty of those self-financed candidates tank on election day.
1: That's true. Just because you're rich doesn't mean you're going to win.
3: So I have just called... Governor-elect Brown, and it is time now for
2: Californians to unite... Meg
1: Whitman was probably the prime recent example of this. She spent $140 million of her own money and still lost. Ross Perot, too, if you want to go back even farther. But it's also true that rich candidates, they have flaws like any other candidate. Still, their money makes them instant contenders. What about
0: Polis? When you spoke to him, what did he say about money in politics and his own money
1: in politics? He says that the campaign finance system is essentially broken.
3: Well, you know, again, I think that finding a way that people can raise the money they need for elections without having to rely on uh, special interests or PACs or corporations or self-funding is the answer.
1: Polis says he supports some sort of alternative, like public financing. But in the meantime, he thinks that his wealth is actually a hedge against the influence
3: of wealthy donors and corporations. Rather than spend, uh, you know, every evening in a you know steakhouse in Denver with a bunch of millionaires, I've been able to have over 250 free meet and greets all over the state. So he says
1: that self-financing is not ideal, but it is more transparent. And he says it does buy him a certain level of political independence. Ben, does that argument remind you at all of Any
0: other politicians who've run for national office recently? Sure. It
1: sounds an awful lot like President Trump as a candidate.
3: I'm self-funding my campaign.
1: In so many ways, these two candidates are completely different. Right. But in one way in which they are similar is this idea that they are above influence. And
3: those PACs control the candidates. Okay? They totally control... Carson
1: is in the end, Trump only paid for a fraction of his total campaign costs, but it does show that this is a powerful talking point for wealthy candidates, that they can make this claim that in an era dominated by money and politics, they aren't accountable to anybody except themselves and the voters. Polis is claiming independence, and he'd contrast that to Walker Stapleton, his opponent in the race for governor who's already getting up to a million dollars in support from the Koch brothers and at least half a million dollars so far from oil and gas companies. So how should we be thinking about wealthy candidates? Are they the cause of the problem of
0: money in politics or are they a response to that problem?
1: So I actually wondered the same thing and that's why I got in touch with Jacob Hacker of Yale. He studies money in politics and he says that wealthy self-financed candidates are a symptom of the problem.
2: I think the bottom line is that campaigns have become grotesquely expensive in, um, in the U.S. And it's an arms race where both sides are upping uh, the ante. And so as a result, you know, there, is, uh, there is more and more emphasis on you're either you're having a lot of money or you're being able to raise a lot of money from fellow rich people. And that means that a lot of the people running for office today are themselves extremely affluent.
1: So he says this isn't the biggest problem in American politics, but it's one that's not going away anytime soon.
2: I think it's pretty clear that in a democracy that is supposed to represent the interests of all Americans, that having a tiny slice of America um, be the only real candidates for office is a problem.
0: But I think there are attempts to deal with it, right? I think there are multiple ballot proposals just right here in Colorado this year.
1: Right. Money is on the ballot in more ways than one. So a prominent Republican was able to get a question on this ballot, which he says will close the millionaire loophole. Basically, if a candidate spends more than a million dollars on his own race, then the campaign finance limits rise for the other candidates. So so their supporters would be able to give five times the current limit. Hmm. There's also a measure in Denver that takes a different approach to the issue. It would offer some matching funds to candidates, so the old public financing route.
0: So it sounds like, at least in Colorado, people are looking for ways that anybody can be competitive in a political race, even if they're not super wealthy.
1: But because this is a symptom of the fact that campaigns are enormously expensive, as Jacob Hacker says, grotesquely expensive, we haven't seen the last of rich candidates like Jared Polis who will pour their fortunes into their campaigns. Ben, thank you so much. Thanks, Sam.
0: Okay, for those of you playing along at home, here's the latest financial scorecard on the governor's race. So far, Jared Polis has brought in $18.6 million for his campaign, and yes, 18.3 of that comes from Polis himself. As for Walker Stapleton, he's raised $2.7 million so far, with just over a million coming from his own pocket. And of course, there are several outside groups spending big on both these guys. And this week, yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about how one man's money can affect state politics. Next week on Purplish, the impact of another man's family.
4: Walker Stapleton is the Republican nominee for governor
0: story from CPR's anne Maria Watt.
4: And he's got a long track record of public service, much like his great-grandfather, Benjamin Stapleton.
3: My great-grandfather served five terms. But
4: what's awkward about that is that the elder Stapleton was in the Ku Klux Klan. And that's not even all of Walker Stapleton's family history. He's also a cousin of the Bush family. So his candidacy is this really telling example of how a political dynasty, to use that term, can cut both ways. And it makes you wonder sort of when you walk into the voting booth. doesn't matter who a candidate is related to.
0: That's it for this week's episode. This podcast is made possible by CPR members. Learn about supporting CPR or join today at CPR.org. And thanks to everybody who downloaded our first few episodes, especially those of you who did it over a crappy dial-up connection. You know, the old... <gasps> Keep the comments and the feedback coming. Megan Verley edits this thing. Editing support this week from Nathaniel Minor, Rachel Estabrook, and Kim Nguyen. Audio production by John Pino and Brad Turner, who also wrote the theme music you're hearing right now. Additional music from Poddington Bear. See you next week.